here's what we're going to do. Tonight, you're not actually going to be in that book at all. Okay. How, how I'm planning to structure uh, the next however many weeks that we have, 13, 14 weeks in this, in this particular study of Ezra and Nehemiah, is that I'm going to give you um, sort of some some major points. We're going to look through some major areas in order to get background and things like that before we jump into whatever lesson it is for that week. So this is what it's going to look like in, in essence. I'm going to teach about some things that lead up to Ezra or um, have very important significance for Ezra and Nehemiah. And then that week, so when we leave here this evening, you will have week one that you do personally. So I want to give you sort of background information that's very important. It'll still be tailored towards you growing spiritually, but this is a time for you to look through um, like week one, week two, so on, so on and so forth, but for you to dig yourself into the text so that you can grow. And how you want to do that throughout the week, that's entirely up to you guys. If you want to just knock it out on Friday, Saturday before we meet on a Sunday, that's up to you. If you want to do it incrementally, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all of that, that's fine too. There's flexibility in this particular study. So I'll let that be up to you guys because I know your schedule is, is as hectic as anybody else's. <coughs> um, so I'll leave that up to you and your family. So let's open with a word of prayer. And I'm going to have a little bit of, uh, we'll have some fun tonight with how we're leading into this this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for uh, this morning that we could uh, gather and worship to uh, lift up your name, to also be poured into because it is so important for us to gather around your word and to, to be able to feast on your word. And so tonight, may we also continue to feast on what it is that you would have for us as it relates to Ezra and Nehemiah, these books that are so important for our own spiritual growth, but also understanding how you set up the entire story that you were planning to fulfill in the person of Christ. And so, Lord, may we grow in these things this evening, and may we learn more about how you are so providential over all things, and how you took time and measured in the smallest details of how you were going to pull all of this together, together so that your, uh, your kingdom come through your own Son. So, Lord, may we grow in these things this evening. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Mm -hmm. So take a sheet of paper in front of you. Plus pins. Yeah, little cups. You hey, it actually it might be great to have crayons for this evening. Yeah. I knew we had quite a few in there. Oh, there's another box. 
Okay, guys. Here's what we're going to do. What is so foundational for the Hebrew people and really what you're going to find for Ezra and Nehemiah is the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to read all of them tonight. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, but we will. Would you say But what's great is that uh, when we get into Ezra, excuse me, Nehemiah 8, they actually do read the first five books of Scripture in one sitting. So it takes approximately about six to eight hours, depending on your reader and, and the like. So we won't have that kind of time. But what is so important is that we are going to lay out Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why in the world will we do this? Because these are the foundational. When I say the, I mean literally the foundational books for the Hebrew people. It is called in Hebrew the Torah. Torah is Hebrew, again, for instruction or teaching. And you're going to see why this is so foundational to the Hebrew people tonight. So I want you to write Genesis. And we're going to walk through Genesis as a whole. Then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ready? 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Earth is formed, creation as a whole. Um, the six days that it's formed, and then God on the seventh day rests, right? Genesis 2, what do you have? Yeah, oh, crack open your Bibles. That's animals. You create man first, you create animals. So, pay attention to the details here. What you find in Genesis 1, think of it like a, a 30,000 foot view. Right? Think of you're on an airplane. Can you see all the smallest details down below? No, you can only see uh, large patterns of crops and highways, maybe uh, towers, water towers, uh, maybe uh, small cities. You definitely see the large cities, but you're seeing things from a 30,000 foot view in Genesis 1. Now, Genesis 2, we get really tight into the picture. So we go from 30,000 feet to ground level. So as Daniel's already pointing out, Genesis 2, in the first couple of verses, it says that in God rested, right? Mm -hmm. And then after that, we're on the ground level. We see specifics. Adam and Eve, right? So we have very specific details about God forming Adam, breathing into his nostrils, giving him life. Then taking from Adam the rib, creating his helper, Eve. Then you have a continuation of telling, now that you have been created in my image and likeness, you are to have dominion over all that I've created, and you are to till and to take care of the land. That is their mission, that's their goal, that's their everyday activity of life. And in fact, this is a very sacred act. In early readings of, of the Hebrew people, this was one of the most sacred activities because all of this is done in the presence of God Himself. Right? Even the Scriptures in Genesis 2 say they walked with God in the coolness of the day. 
So you have this intimacy that's happening in Genesis 2. Now let's slip forward a little. Genesis 3, what do we find? First yeah. sin. Yeah. Sin itself. You know, the temptation with the fruit. That's what I picture that sneaky snake. That sneaky snake. And in fact, the language that's used is um, wise. The serpent is so wise that he's sneaky. So there's a cleverness. That's just great. Yeah, crafty is some 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 language will choose uh, English language will choose crafty or cunning that's there, but it comes from that same root Hebrew word of wisdom. He knew how to discern in order to tempt them away from the presence of God and into their own path. Right. So then we have in Genesis. I want you to jump to uh, the curses. Right. You have the three curses that essentially happen in Genesis 3. You have the curse of Chopper. Yep. For the woman. You have the curse to man, which labor. is you have a certain type of labor, sweat of the brow. Then you have the third curse given to to the snake, to the serpent himself. Oh, it's grown all the building. Yep. And then you have this promise. Smack in the middle of Genesis 3. We tend to overlook this as Christians, um, but for the Jewish people, they would have not overlooked this. Genesis 3.15. Somebody read that. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. That's not it. That's not it. Yeah, 3.15. 3.15. 3.15, sorry. Okay. I was like, this sounds right, but I'm okay. Okay. this is right. Here it is. <laughs> and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike his head. All right. Who's he speaking to? Who's God speaking to? Satan. Satan, right? I will put <laughs> enmity. That think that was yours. I think so, too. <laughs> Enmity between you and the woman, and then you have this promise. He will what? Crush your head. Crush your head, and you will strike or bruise his heel. This is what we call uh, the Latin word is proto-euangelion. What it means by it, it's the early, the, the first, first gospel message, first good news promise is what we mean by that. That there will come this person, this man, who will crush Satan's schemes. Are you, are you picking this up? He will crush Satan's schemes. Even though he will crush Satan, his heel will be bruised. In other words, there will, something will happen to this person who crushes. Okay, okay, so I'm confused. He's talking to the devil right now. Yeah. Okay. Makes, yep. makes better sense now. Yep. God is speaking to Satan and saying, He will crush your head. You will be put to death. All your schemes will be completely put under. But there will be an effect on this person who comes. Okay. So this is the, the first telling, is what we mean by this, the first telling that there is good news coming. This is the promise that the people wait for the entirety of the Old Testament. 
They're waiting for this person to come to crush Satan's schemes and to completely put, um, put all things wrong back to right. Because you have Genesis 1 and 2, everything is good, everything is very good. Satan comes along and then everything is thwarted. Everything is gone wired. Alright? Now, you have Genesis 4 and 5. You have the telling of um, Cain and Abel. Then you have Seth. And then you have a number of other characters. Then there's this new transition. Genesis 6 through 9. Who's the figure here? Noah. Noah. <clears throat> Genesis 6 through 9 is this narrative of Noah. That again, if you we don't we don't typically pick up on this in English language, but in the Hebrew, if you're reading six through nine, it uses the same language of Genesis one and two. That there's this man who is called out on this mission to build this new creation. So the people of he, uh, the Hebrew people, when they're reading Genesis six through nine, they think, oh, just for a second, here's the promised one who is going to crush Satan's schemes and there's hope here for three chapters. And then we find out towards the end of Genesis 9-1. He's not. He's not him. Unfortunately, he's not. In fact, he ends up doing kind of some disgusting things. And now, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for this promised one of Genesis 3-15. And then you jump into Genesis 10, which is what? The destination. Mm -hmm. And then you finally get to Genesis 11, which is? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. So you have all these nations listed, all of these people who are um, having babies left and right, and there's nations growing as fast as they can go. And in Genesis 11, you have all of these people whose main goal in Genesis 11 is to come together as one people. That's their purpose. In order to, in the language of Scripture is, to build a name for themselves. And how do they do that? Build a tower. And what their purpose is, I want to, we want to, as a people, build a tower to the heavens. We're going up to be Godlike. And what happens? Yeah. Right. They want to go up to become godlike. God comes down and changes the languages in order to disperse them. Because the sort of the tale of the narrative is that you cannot become like God. You should have figured that out in Genesis two and three. You can mimic and imitate God in your humanity, but you as a human cannot become God. Alright? Then you have this calling out of this person in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 in fact. Okay. Abraham. Right? Here is hope again. When the people of Israel are reading Genesis 12, they think, and the Lord calls out to this Abram, this man who is hopefully going to be our Messiah, this Savior-like figure. And then they continue following the story of Abraham. You get to Genesis 15 and 17. Two major, it's sort of a retelling, but there's some, some slight differences. But look at Genesis 17. You might find your header. It might be able to tell you. 
the covenant of circumcision. So God makes a promise in Genesis 15. I can turn it over. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is what we looked at. I said this real briefly last week. Three things will come through you, Abraham. Remember the three Ps? Prosperity. Through you, the nations will be blessed. That's what he means I mean by prosperity. Uh, property. I will set you in a place one day, a place of promise, what we now know as the promised land, and then thirdly, progeny, what we mean by those children. Through you, these three things will happen. And then he makes that act very tangible, we'll say, in Genesis 17. He makes it very real. And so this is the sign that the people carry with them through the rest of their life. This is one of the very reasons that you have circumcision for the Israelite people. It is a remembrance, a seal of the promises that God has already made to the, for the people of Israel. Right? Now, we're going to speed up really quick. Because what you have from Genesis 18 to Genesis 50 is all of these promises coming to fruition, coming, coming about. They're blossoming. Because what you have is there are tons of people being born. You have all of the lineage of, of Abraham coming about, Rebekah and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons. You have it coming through. All right? But there's still things lacking. You have progeny. You have children happening. But you're lacking prosperity, a blessing of all people, and you're still lacking property. Right? Then you jump into the next book, Exodus 1. <clears throat> Just as a quick look at your header might say in your Bible, what is happening in Exodus 1? Says the Israelites are oppressed. Yep. So where are they now? They in Egypt, right? So if we follow the narrative of, of uh, uh, Jacob and his sons from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, you'll see that the people of Israel are slowly coming through Joseph. That the promises are sort of wrapped up in Joseph. You know, his sons, uh, his brothers, sell him over into slavery. Eventually he's taken down into Egypt. J uh, Joseph becomes this great uh, sort of leader to help the Pharaoh. This is why they're all in Egypt at this point. is because Joseph is there. And they are, in Genesis 1 and 2, having babies left and right. So many that there's not enough midwives there to catch babies. So... Pharaoh, at this time, different Pharaoh than one that Joseph served under, uh, is worried that they're having so many babies that they're about to outnumber them. That they're about to outnumber all the Egyptians. So what does he have happen? You're the firstborn. Yeah. Uh, no, not just the firstborn. Any male. Any male that's coming about, you kill them. So you have this massive abortion of all of these male children. But what happens is that the, the midwives who are there, they don't hold to the promises or sort of this command that's given by Pharaoh, and they start sneaking babies out. 
And one of the ways they do this, you follow into Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus 2 and 3, you have Moses. Right? <coughs> you have Moses. He's the famous, you know, Sunday school story. He's uh, placed into this basket, sent down the river, and lo and behold, who picks him up? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he comes back into Pharaoh's land, yet he's raised by Pharaoh's own family. Yeah, by the daughter and the family it's, itself. And so you have this twisting of the story. You're like, oh, what's going to happen next? And that's how the Hebrew people would have tried to figure out how is this going to happen? How is this going to turn out where this new Messiah is going to help? And they would ask the question, is Moses the Messiah-like character that's promised in Genesis 3.15? Okay. Then you have Exodus 4, Exodus 5, Exodus 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. What you have there is this calling out of Moses to rescue the people who are oppressed that are crying out. And God promises that He is going to make a people for Himself, a royal priesthood, a great nation, Got it? So you have then the ten plagues that happen throughout these chapters. Eventually, Pharaoh lets these people go. Not because he wants to. Because he's tired of all the plagues hitting his nation. So he lets them go. Then they go out by the masses. Pharaoh changes his mind. They chase after them. They head up to the Red Sea. And as they're chasing them through the Red Sea, the seeds that were parted fall back onto them, completely crushing all of the Pharaoh's army. And then you have in Exodus 15, this song of Moses, right? This is a famous song that, that is sung even to this day, that you have the Israelites talking about how God crushed Egypt. And He crushed this oppressive power, they were greater, and yet God was for them and crushed them because He wanted to fulfill His promises, not only of progeny, children, but also prosperity and property. Which gets to that third one, the property. Where are these people going now? To the promised land. So from Exodus 16... As they continue to travel, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're still not in the promised land. They're traveling this entire time. In fact, here's where I want to really camp out and just slow down for a second because I know you're probably tired. Yeah, right? It is. It's a lot to take in. From Exodus 19... To Numbers 10, so that means you have Exodus 19 all the way to Exodus 40, Leviticus 1 to Leviticus 27, and then Numbers 1 to Numbers 10, they're still at Mount Sinai the entire time. We sometimes overlook this. Did you catch that? 
Well, they're going to travel. Uh, there's actually, once Numbers 10 slash 11 hits, that's when they leave Mount Sinai and then they take that full year journey. Okay. So from Numbers 11 to the end of Numbers, they travel for 40 years. And so what, what happens at Deuteronomy 1, they are pretty much on the outskirts of the promised land. What I usually say is they're at the fruitland of Trenton. They're right there at Fruitland waiting to go into the promised land. They can see it. They can see it. Yeah. yeah. So if Fruitland was higher, we could see Fruitland. Right? But, yeah. <laughs> you see the granary. Yeah. If we're on the granary, we'd probably see Trenton. But that's where, where essentially they're at. From Deuteronomy 1 to the end of Deuteronomy. They are right there. And in fact, all of Deuteronomy is... Uh, the, the title Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, Deuteros and Namas. It means second giving of the law. In other words, Moses preaches five sermons in Deuteronomy. And all he's doing is saying, remember the law that was given to you. He's just telling the people the law before they go in and take, in, take over the land. That's all that's happening. But I want to emphasize Exodus 19 all the way to Exodus 50, then from Leviticus 1 to 27, all of the book of Leviticus, then Numbers 1 to Numbers 10, they're at Mount Sinai the entire time. That's where you're coming out with Right, so the entire time you have Moses receiving the instructions, receiving the law. And this is why this is called the Torah. Again, Hebrew for Torah is, or the English for the Hebrew Torah is instruction or law. This is sort of the hinge of the five books of, the first five books of Scripture. It's the hinge. Think of the first five books of Scripture as the foundation. Everything that you read after the first five books of Scripture returns, keeps talking about Genesis to Deuteronomy. All the prophets, they're not saying anything new, ever. They're just pointing back and saying, remember that time we got the law, the instructions from Moses? Wasn't there a big earthquake that swallowed the rock? When? When you come down from the Oh yeah, so you have um, Exodus 32, the golden calf. Yeah. Alright? So you're going to have interruptions in the story he is receiving the instructions and he goes down he and he goes back up and then he goes back down he goes back up and there's still communication between God uh, to Moses and Moses to the people. So when he goes up, he goes up for a long time. Though. Right. Uh, for how long? We don't know yeah, in its entirety. Long enough to have a dope calf. Right. For them to yeah. actually and, and what you find in Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis, yeah, Exodus 32 that's in part why they start building the cap is because one, they're getting tired of waiting on Moses. They want to hurry up and worship this God. And two, um, they have certain desires that want to be fulfilled in the process. And so that's, they throw a big part down there. And then God tells Moses, Moses gets upset, goes down and starts telling them, you can't be doing this. I've been up here talking to God this entire time. This cannot happen. Because if you go back 
one of the reasons why God wants to rescue this people is to bring out the three promises that He gives to Abraham that He wants them to receive the instructions of what right worship is. How to worship Yahweh. How to worship God fully and completely. And so we can see Genesis through Deuteronomy as so overwhelming. Can't we? Especially Leviticus. I spent almost four years in the book of Leviticus um, in my second master's program only in Leviticus because it's such a frustrating book and I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, I'm going to read through scripture this year. Genesis, Exodus is smooth. They hit Leviticus and like, what in the world is going on? But when we see this in the big picture of things, hopefully what you're seeing tonight, I want to, in some ways, build a map for us. So whenever uh, travelers would go into a new land, uh, think of um, where the guys, Lewis and Clark, when they're going across and venturing to the Midwest and the West, the entire time they're not just traveling, they also are keeping what are called cartographies, maps of elevation change and all the different types of things that are going on as they're traveling through. What I want you to see from Genesis to Deuteronomy is a map. It is a map for how God's people are invited to live, what it means to be holy, what it means to live out this holiness in their everyday life. Every single day life. And so when we jump into Ezra and Nehemiah, you now have a foundation from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Because when Ezra starts speaking, when Nehemiah starts speaking, they're going to continuously remind all the people who are coming back in from exile, this is the people we were called to be, and this is the people that we need to return to. We need to return to the Torah, the five books of Scripture. So you saw in, Genesis, in Ezra 1, what were the things happening last week? This is where we're going to end. The first four verses of Ezra 1. Cyrus was letting go back to the promised land. All right, so you have this Persian king, Cyrus, who's coming in, and he's saying, all of these refugees, all of these exiles who were part of the Babylonian captivity... We're sending them back home and they are able to rebuild what? The temple. The temple. Now we sort of talked about the reasons why Cyrus might have this in mind. Probably selfish political reasons. But on the flip side of that, when the people are going back into Israel, they see God's promises being restored. The promises that were given to Abraham. The three promises of prosperity, progeny, and property. They're going back to their property. All their progeny, all their children are coming back together. Now, God's promises must be coming alive through us. We weren't in the promises when we were in captivity from Assyria and Babylon. Now, we're returning back. God must be up to something but we're not quite sure what it is. But they're waiting because in the building of that temple, 
they know that something big is about to happen. Right? Let me pause. I know that's a lot to take in. But any questions? Where are the donuts? <laughs> <laughs> hey, donuts are in the morning, Bubba. <laughs> well, I have a good appetite on my side. <laughs> Maybe I'll go do some donuts next week, alright? <laughs> hey, I have a question. Uh, yeah. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I thought of it last time, and then stay with me all week. You know how you talk about uh, rhythm temple, everybody wanted everything to be so perfect and so precise? Mm -hmm. And all the measures and things. Do you think they wanted to do that because God was more of a tangible item in that time? You know, like the burning bush, and sandy river, and stone, and water, and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. Can you give them specific instructions? Yeah, very. In fact, if you want to read those instructions, go from Exodus 25 to Exodus 40. Yeah. Where you had those specific instructions. You sort of gave me the the last part of what we're going to talk about. I'm sorry. Man, you're, you're just good. <laughs> here's here's what, what we're going to do. Because we do get caught up in a sense of what's going on with the building of the temple, the precision that's there. And I told you last week that you have very specific details as it relates to like certain uh, colors. You have even certain uh, beastly figures that are supposed to be drawn and carved. And in fact, you'll have a calling out of certain carpenters, uh, Aholiab and Bezalel uh, in Exodus 34, to be these crafters of everything that happens inside the temple. Remember what I said that that is a picture and symbol of? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Somebody said gardener, right? So I want you to keep that in mind. To enter into the temple was to enter in some sense into the very presence of God, which was to look back into the Garden of Eden. Right? So I want you to keep that in mind as I read this part. Important theme, first important theme of the temple was a microcosm of whole creation. Think microcosm of the small. A small picture of, of creation. So you have in the temple, from its very beginning, the carvings of cherubim, angel-like creatures, palm trees, open flowers, and in, in an, an inner shrine, the central hall and the doors leading into rooms, lily work, lattice work, pomegranates and bronze pillars, bronze oxen, molten sea, cherubim, lions, palm trees, oxen, wreaths, seraphim, all about in, in, in its symbolic significance of where they were in the garden. So once it comes to thinking of the temple, you, again, when you entered into the temple, you were in some sense entering into the garden again. Because the hope one day was to return back to that state where you're in perfect communion with God, where you are in perfect communion with other human beings and there's zero sin that is tainting your life. <clears throat> if you walk from Genesis, and this is what I'm going to do eventually through these 15 or so weeks, 
Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament and then finally to the very end, what's the last book of I almost said it, of scripture? Revelation. Revelation. Do you know what the picture is in Genesis uh, sorry, Revelation twenty one and twenty two? Temple. Where God restores all things. And you have this garden city of some sort where he brings all of his people back into his presence. And in fact, the language is not that uh, the people go up to God, but actually God comes down to the people and restores creation. So you do have a very tangible picture because the bookends of Scripture is about peace and communion with God. Once upon a time, Genesis 1-1, right? <coughs> Revelation 21-22 is, and there is a happily ever after. You see the full story of Scripture? And so Revelation 21 and 22 is God's people in a temple of some sorts, a temple of creation, worshiping Him, and there's creation as it was meant to be. So the hope of our Christian life, I'm going to push back on certain perspectives of, of, of Christianity. The hope of Christian life isn't to be um, a soul before God, as in like a spirit. The hope of the Christian life is resurrection. So think of it like this. When we die, of course, we're saved by faith, we go before the presence of God. That's not the end of the story, church. That's not the end of our story. One day, God will restore all things the way that it was meant to be in creation. He will restore all of creation without sin, and there will be a perfect harmony between Him and humanity and humanity and humanity. We will live all nations, tribes, tongues, people together who have professed faith in Christ forever and ever. Resurrection is the hope. To not be in a body, to be a spirit before Him after we die, is just the halfway point before He restores all things to the way it was meant to be in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot to take in. But I want us to have a very clear understanding about our life is meant to be tangible. Otherwise, God wouldn't have created us as human beings with the ability to feel and to taste and to smell and to hear if one day we were just going to be separated from these bodies and that was it. So, so what you're saying is there's going to be heaven on earth. Exactly. And in fact, the language of Gen uh, Revelation 21 and 22 is called new heavens and new earth. So what was split apart in Genesis 3, heaven and earth, is going to be put back together in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so Genesis, earth and heaven are the same. They are, they're in perfect communion with one another. And then whenever the first thing was committed, then it got split into two. Don't think of it in a physical way, like heaven went up there and earth stayed down here. But think of it in the sense of there is not a, a perfect relationship between heaven, a.k.a. God, and humanity. I got you. And there must be a, a restoring of heaven and earth, which, not coincidence, the story of Scripture, or story of the Christian faith is heaven comes to earth in a human being. So you have the divine and earth met, in a sense. 
in order to bring about the change of no longer will sin reign, but death and sin is conquered. I know that's like drinking from... Oh, okay. That makes sense to me. What I'm trying to do is to give you the entire story of Scripture in a, in a nugget form. Now, we're going to keep returning to this. Don't think, oh gosh, I have to know this all tonight. No, 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 no. No quizzes, nothing like that. <laughs> but, make one. Make one. I'll throw another one in there for awesome, but I'm trying to give you the 30,000 foot view so that we keep returning to it. Because Exodus, uh, sorry, Ezra and Nehemiah only makes sense when we set it into the full story. It's like watching um, any of your favorite movies and just watching one scene and not watching the beginning or end. Ezra and Nehemiah is sort of in the middle of the story. We need to know where it sits in the whole for it to make sense. All right. Any other questions? I did not want to talk that much. Are you going to ask about donuts? No. Where's the chocolate cake? See, it's not donuts. <laughs> donuts and chocolate cake. Any other questions, guys? No. Where's the beef turkey? So, I do apologize in some sense that we have to, to do that in one sitting to lay all of that out. But I want you to keep returning to that because it will make more sense as we go along and as we're Nehemiah. And so when I give you this big picture here, and we're at some point Ezra or Nehemiah, I'll say, remember when we talked about right, Genesis through Deuteronomy? That's why. Because the people in Ezra and Nehemiah could not understand themselves without the first five books of Scripture. Could not. That was a part of their identity. Alright guys, if there's nothing else, let's close in prayer. And uh, good to see you all again this week. And we'll go through this week, week one of your uh, Bible study. It's going to take you deeper into the text. And so when we meet next week, we'll take about 10 to 15 minutes of sort of hashing out what you read. And then we'll continue the next you know, 30 minutes for whatever it is that we need to wrestle with. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this night, how, it is, how it's been set apart for you, how you worked in your own providence of this moment that we can have Sunday nights to learn from you, from your scriptures, and to be able to really ingest and to feast on what it is that's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, Lord... Your story of Scripture is large and it can never be exhausted. At the same time, we long to learn what it's all about. And that's why we're here. And so may you keep teaching us and keep, uh, keep learning us about how we can fit into this story of Scripture. How you have designed us to worship you. How you've restored us and rescued us for yourself so that we can live out in every part of our life what it means to follow you. And so, Lord, 
May we be that people this week. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.